Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today, we're going to talk about LGBTQ employment discrimination. And obviously, we've covered the Bostock case and the victory for LGBTQ workers at the Supreme Court. But we're going to talk today a little bit about what it's like to work on the plaintiff side and bring cases enforcing Title VII. Um, and we're going to be looking at specifically a complaint alleging discrimination and retaliation filed by a former Hamilton actor against their employer, Hamilton the Musical. And we're going to do that by talking to uh, one of the attorneys in that case, uh, Lindsay Goldblum. Uh, Lindsay is an associate at Wigdor LLP. Lindsay represents individuals in a wide range of employment matters, including sexual harassment, sexual assault, discrimination on the basis of gender, pregnancy, race. Lindsay is also a board member of the LGBT Bar Association of New York, Legal. Um, so she does advocacy on a broad range of issues impacting the community at all of its intersections. And as I mentioned, Lindsay represents Suni Reed, a former Hamilton cast member who filed a workplace complaint with the EEOC alleging violations of Title VII and state human rights laws. Specifically, they allege that the show retaliated against them by refusing to renew a contract after SUNY had requested gender neutral dressing room space. Um, so we're gonna talk about this complaint, but this will also give us an opportunity to talk to Lindsay about her work, um, in enforcing employment non-discrimination protections. Lindsay, we have a lot to talk about. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, this week has been a bit of a whirlwind after filing this complaint. And that was a really great lead up into it. I think this case is unique and so special and so important because it really brings out a lot of the intersectionality within our community and within people's actual lives. You know, SUNY's claims are about a whole host of things related to their race, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, and their gender in and of itself. And I think that it really gives us an opportunity to look into how all of those things play with one another and how they can truly have an impact on someone, even at an employer like Hamilton. Um, you know, I think one of the important things that I've learned and that I think the public is generally starting to learn is that public perception of a company is not necessarily what's happening behind the scenes. And so what we're seeing with Hamilton is there is this public persona that you see as the ideal of diversity they're putting on stage, people of color in roles that are, the individuals they're portraying are white people, um, but it's showing how beautifully that can be presented on stage. But then you have to take a step behind the scenes to see how they actually are treating their employees that are the ones who have these same identities. It's true. And I think, um, you know, in reading the complaint, 
we're, we're going to get into the specifics here, but, you know, in reading the complaint, it is all encompassing. Uh, there are aspects of gender and race and discrimination, retaliation, um, so many intersecting um, issues. And I think maybe just to start off, um, you know, looking at uh, a survey uh, released by the National Center for Transgender Equality, one in six trans people said that they lost a job because of their gender identity, their expression, and nearly a third, so 30% of those who held a job in the year prior to the survey reported being fired, denied a promotion, or subjected to harassment or attack due to their gender identity and expression. I mean, for, for getting and keeping a regular job, it can be out of reach for transgender and gender non-conforming people who face misgendering, unfair hiring and firing practices, denial of health care, barriers to accessing spaces that match their identities. So, you know, we typically think about these cases in terms of, you know, this is Idaho or this is Kansas, but it happens in New York City. It happens in, in Los Angeles. Um, what's it like to do kind of this work in New York City? You know, that's interesting. So as you described in the lead and I do discrimination across the board. And so, you know, I do pregnancy discrimination, race discrimination, gender discrimination, the list goes on and on. And what I've noticed in my practice the last few years, because I practice in New York and granted SUNY's case is in California. So we do take cases outside of New York. I see a lot less LGBT discrimination in New York than I will other types of discrimination. And I think a lot of that is a product of where I'm practicing because New York generally has so many, so a such higher concentration of queer identities. And I think it's a lot more accepted in the New York social sphere, but not to say that it doesn't come up uh, and you know certainly when it does come up you see it come up a lot more in the context of trans individuals than and gender non-conforming individuals and relating to gender identity than you will see with sexual orientation you know obviously as, as a queer person myself I have dealt with what it's like to come out in the workplace and I think I've been very fortunate because I've been in New York and I've been you know, in legal spaces where I think it, it can be a bit more progressive. So I haven't really faced adversity, but that being said, I am so aware of what's happening in other industries and of course in other locations, certainly in the, around the country. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's start by talking about the complaint. We've obviously talked around it. Um, you know, I'm a musical theater fan. I went to singing and dancing school. I have a BFA in musical theater um, before I went to law school. Um, I love Hamilton. I love Broadway. It's why I live in New York practically. Um, so we're at the complaint stage here. Hamilton the musical is not responded in, in a court filing. Um, they did provide a statement to the New York Times, which I'll read later on, but I'm hoping that you can start us off by giving us a little bit of a, a background into uh, SUNY here. Tell us about, about SUNY. So SUNY is just overall an incredible person. Um, you know, they have really proved themselves as far as their talent. And I have to tell you, they're 
the way they present themselves and the way they talk about these issues is really phenomenal because they are such an intelligent and kind human being. So SUNY came up um, doing acting while they were a kid, uh, you know, really pushing themselves because they had real talent. Uh, they went to Pace and were getting their, their acting degree there. And during their senior showcase, at the end of their senior year, they were picked up by Hamilton. Um, you know, there was a someone there from Hamilton that saw SUNY and saw their talent and decided that this person needs to be on our stage. Uh, it took a period of time for SUNY to actually end up making their Broadway debut in Hamilton because, you know, there were multiple castings. There were different ways they needed to figure out where SUNY would fit in the cast. And at that time, SUNY was not openly transgender or non-binary. Um, you know, while SUNY was waiting to be casted, they were singing for free at different events. They were working for jobs. They were trying to do whatever they could to, to make it work for them because they knew they needed to be on stage. Um, so SUNY started in the Broadway company uh, as the role is called Man Six. And so essentially the role of Man Six is an ensemble role, but they take over the roles of Mulligan Madison, George Washington, Aaron Burr, when those people cannot go on stage and perform. And so SUNY's really run the gamut Ultimately, after multiple incidents of workplace harassment and bullying, SUNY, based on SUNY's, both SUNY's race, gender identity, and sexual orientation in the Broadway company, SUNY no longer felt com comfortable being in the Broadway company. And so SUNY requested a transfer to Chicago. Um, SUNY went over to Chicago and played almost the same role. It was a, it was a lead standby role. And so SUNY was Mulligan Madison, SUNY was again playing George Washington, Aaron Burr, but they added the role of Marquis de Lafayette and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson. So you referenced that they left the Broadway cast because of discrimination, mistreatment. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those issues were? So a lot of the issues that SUNY experienced in the Broadway company were coming from their castmates, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, certainly SUNY would be the first to acknowledge that there are plenty of wonderful people that work on Hamilton. And it's generally a select group uh, that end up exhibiting, you know, this behavior. And so there were certain incidents where, you know, SUNY was referred to as Miss Six, you know, a play on their role of Man Six. They were told that, you know, they were made fun of for swishing their hips in a too effeminate way. Um, they were called Medea and Auntie by coworkers. And ultimately there was an incident where SUNY felt unsafe after a coworker essentially, you know, it, it's detailed in the complaint, but a coworker said some really offensive things to SUNY about, you know, their gender identity and, you know, essentially praying the gay away. Um, to a point where SUNY just couldn't take it anymore. And I think there was a lot of that locker room talk in the dressing rooms and generally the masculine environment that was being pushed on SUNY was one that was just not tolerable. 
Right, and that's, I mean, at its core, that's kind of what the, the retaliation claim um, relates to, which is about access to a gender neutral dressing room. And so SUNY is in a dressing room with other male identified colleagues, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, at some point in their time in the Chicago company, SUNY did come out as non trans and non-binary, and they formally requested that they be addressed using they, them pronouns. Now SUNY uses both they, them pronouns and she, her pronouns. Um, but essentially, you know, SUNY faced, you know, further issues in the Chicago company. And then COVID shut down the Broadway world. I mean, the whole world, essentially. Yeah. But as theater started coming back this summer, SUNY was in negotiations to join the LA company. And prior to that, SUNY had made a number of social media posts addressing racial equity at Hamilton and had actually been reached out to by outside counsel that Hamilton had hired to look into these issues and talked through some of the issues that SUNY had seen, some of the experience that they had had. And so Hamilton was well aware of these social media posts and SUNY's feelings about the racial equity at Hamilton. Right, so and just to zoom out, Lindsay, I mean, this was a conversation that's really been going on, you know, as the pandemic was raging within the Broadway community, you have seen people stand up to demand social justice, racial equity, um, it's, you know, there have been marches in New York City. Um, so there are definitely, you know, this isn't like limited to Hamilton in any way or this type of activism kind of happening so that we can change the culture of Broadway. It really was a conversation that was being led by um, musical theater performers, particularly performers of color, of all identities. Um, so that just puts it a little in perspective of when this is happening, right? Well, absolutely. And really the Black Lives Matter movement, while obviously these issues of racial equity have existed forever, really started to shine a light on the different facets of how it was affecting all industries. And that includes musical theater, which even happens to be more progressive on a large scale than most industries. And so when SUNY's contract negotiations were going on for the LA company, SUNY brought forward the issue of a gender neutral dressing room, not to be used by themselves, but to be available to all of the cast, whoever felt comfortable, safe, or wanted to use the gender neutral dressing room. And a lot of that is in part to, due to the harassment and the discrimination that SUNY has been facing for years in the male identified dressing rooms at Hamilton. And it felt like from that moment forward, SUNY became vilified. You know, they. Hamilton started looking into what they could use against SUNY for bringing forward issues. And so then they brought up the social media posts as being an issue where previously they had known and still offered SUNY a contract, but then they used it to pause SUNY's contract and brought it forward as an issue that they had that would potentially prevent them from bringing SUNY back to the cast. And Going forward, you just saw hostility really starting to rise against SUNY for bringing forward these issues. And SUNY reached out to an advocate for Broadway for racial justice. And that just seemed to, to bring forward further anger because there was almost an air of how dare you bring someone 
into our space, even though SUNY reached out to Broadway for racial justice to help advocate for them. And so it became clear that after SUNY raised these issues requesting a gender neutral dressing room, while Hamilton ultimately complied due to the generosity of another cast member giving up their dressing room for this specific reason, Hamilton was not going to bring SUNY back. And ultimately they didn't. Um, even though the dressing room that was ultimately created, thanks to the generosity of another cast member, was a sufficient solution for SUNY that would have allowed SUNY to come back and SUNY would have happily gone back to the cast of Hamilton. But unfortunately, Hamilton did not feel the same way. All right, and so what can you tell us about their interactions with the, with the upper management of, of Hamilton? I mean, you know, we think about Hamilton and I think of, of specifically just the cast and the creatives, but you know, there's, a, there's an issue here with a lack of concern and a, a very problematic way um, or a very troubling way of, of the upper management referring to SUNY's um, uh, complaints as being problematic, right? I think that sort of speaks for itself. I think when you look at Hamilton on stage versus looking at their management, you'll realize the management is predominantly white. Um, it does not have that level of diversity that you see on the stage in Hamilton every night. And the way they reacted to SUNY's complaints of both discrimination and request for gender neutral dressing room, I think says it all as far as how SUNY's interactions with this management have gone and how they've handled these complaints. It's unfortunate. Tell us about the legal claims that you're, that you're bringing here. The legal claims that we're bringing right now are under the general anti-discrimination laws, you know, Title VII, of course, uh, is a federal discrimination law. Um, and then there is the California version of anti-discrimination law as well as California has a statute that is rather unique that we're using, which essentially says that a gender neutral dressing room is an accommodation that sh should have legally been given to SUNY, given their gender identity. And so that's part of the California Code of Regulations. And so that's a claim as well as the California Fair Employment and Housing Act and Title VII. And so in California specifically, and for the federal laws, you have to file a claim with the EEOC before you can bring a lawsuit. So we have filed with the EEOC. The next steps traditionally will be that Hamilton will file a response. Given that generally the EEOC is a confidential process, it's, there's no guarantee that that response is going to be made public. Um, and if SUNY and we had elected to keep the EEOC charge confidential, we could have done that as well. But given how important this issue is, it was important that people understand what was happening. And going forward, the EEOC has a number of options as to how they want to handle SUNY's complaints. But ultimately the goal for us is that we are going to bring a federal lawsuit against Hamilton as a result of SUNY's claims. Right. And I mean, we don't have the kind of time to be able to, I encourage folks, I'll link to 
uh, the complaint so that folks can can read it. Um, we don't have time to go into all of the specific allegations, but suffice it to say, there are, you know, you, you name individuals, the specific behavior um, that that is that is uh, alleged here. Um, there's some really disturbing comments that are uh, and harassment detailed in this complaint. Um, and particularly, you know, I was reading the discussion um, that they had reporting the proud, this proud slave moment. Can you talk about that? So essentially that occurred during a dance rehearsal. Um, and the dance captain told the cast members to act like proud slaves. And this is also not an isolated type of comment in that during the LA company meeting where they're discussing, pretend part of what they were discussing were Sunni's contract negotiations and why Sunni wasn't joining rehearsals. Council hired by Hamilton said that this is not a plantation. Anyone that wants to leave can. And so these problematic comments are not occurring in a vacuum, unfortunately, in the Hamilton space. How often are you dealing with retaliation as the claim for reporting uh, harassment or um, misconduct in the beginning? Unfortunately, we see retaliation quite a lot. I, I think that a vast majority of the claims that we bring are both for discrimination and the retaliation that stems from it. Now, while I believe that obviously it happens a lot that retaliation stems from discrimination complaints, part of my personal theory as to why those are the cases that we're seeing is that because sometimes when people complain of discrimination and are not retaliated against, they're not necessarily going to bring claims of discrimination. A lot of employees don't select to do that. When employees are retaliated against after making these complaints is when they really end up feeling like they need to take this into their own hands and they need to secure legal counsel to protect them and their rights. And so it's the company's illegal actions that stem from these discrimination complaints that often escalate it to a point where legal intervention is necessary. Mm. A report released by the EEOC showed in 2020 showed that 55% of the complaints that they received that year related to retaliation after reporting a sexual harassment incident or a harassment incident of some kind. I did want to note that uh, this is Hamilton's response in the New York Times, Hamilton the Musical, it says, uh, in its own statement, um, Reed has been a valued cast member for years and that the show had offered them a contract to return to Hamilton with terms responsive to their requests. We denied the allegations and the charge. We have not discriminated or retaliated against SUNY. During the shutdown, we have given SUNY direct financial support, paid for their health insurance, and paid for their housing. We wish SUNY well in their future endeavors. So that was uh, Hamilton's response in the New York Times. And of course, like I mentioned at the outset, we're at the complaint stage here. The next step is what, what's happening right now. Well, right now, the EEOC complaint is being forwarded to an investigator. No investigator has been assigned. Um, and the next step would really be for Hamilton to respond to these allegations in writing. 
um, you know, which obviously hasn't happened so far other than, than the response in the media. And so we're essentially really just in a, in a waiting position right now. You know, you're dealing with in your daily work plaintiffs who are, um, you know, taking a bold step often um, are very vulnerable. What what type of what's it like to um, represent somebody as this kind of process unfolds? It's interesting in this area of law, because I think that client relationships are so important in a way that in other areas of law might not be the case. And so not only are you their legal advocate, but you're also you're also a big support system for them. And so making sure that this person that you're representing is feeling heard, making sure that you're understanding what's best for them and what they want to get out of the process is all so important to representing victims who are going through some of the worst times of their lives. I mean, the clients here, they come to you with really tragic incidents and things that they really, you, you hope no one ever has to go through. And so being that support system and making sure that you are constantly keeping their best interests at heart is so important in this line of work. Yeah. Um, so in addition to uh, some of the work that you've done, you also represented uh, a witness who helped uh, put Harvey Weinstein away. Um, can you talk a little bit about your involvement in that case, the criminal case against Harvey Weinstein? Yes. So I represent a number of victims of Harvey Weinstein, but, but the case you're specifically referring to is my representation of Tarlay Wolf who testified as a Molyneux witness at his New York trial. And so that was a really incredible experience because it was so important. When you look back at the trials of your lifetime, you know, there's only a handful that every person in the country was aware of and was following. And this was one of them. And so to be there for Tarlay as far as attending sessions with the DA to prep for trial and making sure that she understood the legal process and her rights throughout the whole thing. And again, back to what we discussed previously, being that, being part of that support system for her through the whole process uh, was so important and is so important. And to see such a positive result, you know, a 23 year prison sentence for someone that 10 years ago might've been untouchable is really a sign as to where this country is going. And I think post Me Too movement, we're seeing so many more people come forward with their claims of sexual assault and sexual harassment in a way that we just didn't see before. And in a way that is so powerful because there's actually something that can be done about it now in a way that it was possible before, but, but obviously less likely. And it's being taken far more seriously than it has throughout history. And it's really wonderful the way that the law and public opinion is evolving around these issues. So it's interesting, you have a, a 
a career that um, isn't, you know, you came to this work out of doing criminal legal work as an assistant um, district attorney. So how does that kind of perspective that you have, first of all, how did you end up going into this line of work? And second, how does that kind of background in criminal, um, you know, in the prosecution side, um, how does that inform the work that you do now? I think it's far more similar than people would expect it to be. Interestingly, my whole philosophy surrounding what I do and why I do it is that I want to advocate for people that have been taken advantage of. And I want to advocate for people who don't have the ability to advocate for themselves. And I think that was what I was doing both in the Brooklyn DA's office and at my current job. I think leaving the DA's office for me was a decision that I wanted to go into private practice, but I didn't want to lose the sense of standing up for what's right, advocating for people, and being able to do so in a way that I thought really mattered and a way that I could feel passionate about. And so moving into the employment space, specifically in the area of discrimination law, was a way that I could still do that. And I think that my knowledge and my connections to the criminal justice system have aided me in a number of ways in my current practice. And I think the first of which was when I was representing Tarlay Wolf during the Harvey Weinstein trial, because I had been on the criminal justice side as well, I think I had a deeper understanding of the process and of what that was like. And so it was able to inform my advice and counsel for my client in that sense. And I think working for a DA's office gives you the ability to advocate in a way that's very difficult in a civil sphere when you're not spending as much time actively advocating orally in front of a judge as you are in the criminal justice system. Mm. And so I think it's helped me in many ways. And I think they're, they're far more interrelated than one would think just on a brief glance. That's so interesting. And I hadn't thought of it that way. And I'm also wanting to ask you, you know, today is your anniversary. You've been married for two years, your wife in, and you are expecting a baby like next month or, <laughs> or soon. And you're doing, you know, you're on the board of, of Legal, which is volunteer work. You just had a women's event that you helped organize. So you're super busy. You just bought a home. How do you manage that kind of life, um, you know, life work balance? You're, you're busy. Um, you're very busy in your <laughs> employment, uh, in your career. So can you talk to, or do you have any advice about how you juggle those things? Or do you think you're even successfully juggling those things? I hope so. <laughs> um, I'd like to think I'm successfully juggling these things, but that's not to say it's not difficult. Uh, you know, all of the things you've described, and then of course there's always more, There is no easy way to handle all these things that you care so much about, other than making sure you carve out time for each one of them. And so there is time that I need to carve out just to be with my wife and to prepare the nursery and to get ready for the baby outside of work. And I'm very lucky to have employers that understand that, but there also is a lot to be said for having a very supportive wife like I do, where if I need to work on a Saturday, she gets it and 
she doesn't make me feel any sort of way about it because she understands the importance of my work and how passionate I am about what it is that I'm doing. And the same thing goes for legal. Again, I have the benefit of working for an employer that stands up for people who have been discriminated against. And so when I say I want to, to be a part of this organization that advocates for LGBTQ plus people, they are not only accepting of that, but they're supportive of it. And so it's all about making sure that these aspects of your life play together and that you set aside time for each one of them. Mm. But it's very busy. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> always get it right. Um, and yeah, it's a negotiation. And I certainly appreciate you carving out time to speak with us today. I'm wondering if in closing, you know, you have any kind of thoughts or advice for um, somebody who might want to kind of follow in your career path to young attorneys who, and you know, you're, you're a young attorney for sure. Um, but other advice to people who are kind of either similarly situated or looking to get into work like you do representing and giving a voice to um, people who uh, are facing discrimination and harassment. Um, what kind of advice would you give, give to them? I think the advice that I would give to people are give your time generously and don't just focus on the career aspect. And so I think what I mean by that is my involvement with legal, while it's on a voluntary basis, while it's something that I want to do and it's something that I give my time to expecting nothing in return, it does give me in return a lot of career benefits. You have to think that the things you do in your free time will impact your career. And what's important is you go after something that you're passionate about. I'm passionate about representing people and standing up for people who have these queer identities or who are just generally taken advantage of. And so that's something that I actively pursued. And so if you show your passion and you push that as far as you can in both your career and in outside activities, that's how you'll get ahead and that's how you'll push forward in your career. And don't be afraid to reach out to others and ask for mentorship. Um, one thing I've noticed throughout my career since I've been at Wigdor, I get contacted all the time by people who are interested in doing what I do. And I will always answer that call. I will always set aside time to talk to people about what it is I do and how it is that you can get your career on this type of track. And so I think being bold and putting yourself out there is the most important thing that you can do to kind of progress in that way. It's really important to show up for others and you'll be surprised how much people want to give back um, if you just ask. I mean, I know with our mentoring program, we always have tons of people who are stepping up to mentor law students. Um, so if you want to, um, you really need to start building your networks now. It's so important. Lindsay, this has been so interesting to talk to you about the the case uh, that you're bringing on behalf of SUNY Reed, and to talk more broadly about employment discrimination issues, about career advice, um, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It really was a wonderful conversation. Have a good time at your, you're doing a massage or? <laughs> yes, massage and lunch today. 
Yes, day of pampering. <laughs> Be sure to, if you're listening out there, take some time for self-care too. And uh, happy anniversary, Lindsay. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online on Spotify, on iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please like us, review us, give us five stars. It's how other people find out about this podcast and it's how we grow our audience. As our regular listeners will know, we cover a wide range of topics here on the podcast in addition to employment discrimination. We talk about international human rights issues, LGBT asylum claims, religious discrimination, HIV advocacy, and the latest updates from the Biden White House and from SCOTUS. So please give us a listen. We'll be back nearly every other week with a new episode. Thanks for listening.